Rusty Quill presents. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Some fears are shared unevenly amongst the inhabitants of this little blue ball. The fear, for instance, that your agency could be stripped away at any moment without recourse isn't something we all feel, but that some of us know all too well. It's fear that comes with a shaky position in society. Women, minorities, and folks with lifestyles and predilections that buck the status quo. If you're not one of these folks, you might not know what it's like to not be believed, to simply be ignored by the powers that be, to be dismissed casually, even to have your life simply placed into the hands of another, regardless of how you feel about the situation. Today's story lives amongst the tendrils of this idea. It is the story of a woman who wakes up to a life that isn't hers, that she doesn't want to live, and that certain forces, certain people, won't allow her to leave. Our protagonist knows the truth about herself, but she's stripped of her freedoms, even her dignity simply because that's the sort of thing that happens to women, sometimes. Hello, my name is Tyler Bell, and you're listening to The West Side Fairy Tales, a collection of horror and dark fiction stories written, read, and produced by me. Before we get to today's story, there's a book I want to tell you guys about. House of Leaves by Mark C. Danielewski is one of the strangest books I've ever had the chance to read. It's only even technically a book. That's the shape, at least, this work comes in. Though, after just a few pages, the metatextual narrative really just sort of takes off on its own and becomes something entirely new. At its heart, it's the story of a romance between a husband and wife, as well as something of a classical haunted house story. But the house isn't really haunted, I think. It's actually its own sort of ghost. And, also, the entire story might be made up by a man losing his grip on sanity while researching said story. Or maybe there's something else going on entirely. It's the most bizarre thing I've ever read. Super creepy, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Just make sure you get the color version if you buy it. You'll understand what I mean if you ever get your hands on a copy. Now, without further ado, today's story, Bands of Golden Iron.
There was a ring on my finger when I woke up, and I've no idea how it got there. The gemstone, a fat ruby, had scratched the soft skin just beneath my eyebrow and wrestled me from an odd dream about a duck. One of those French kind, trapped in a cage with a tube down its throat so they could fatten its liver for pate. The men around the cage were calling it ungrateful for puking. I sat up on the edge of the bed, surprised my feet weren't brushing the ground as usual. I had been drinking, I think, the night before. Some of the girls from Walther and Dunbarton had taken me out to celebrate my recent promotion to head of switchboard operations. My mouth tasted like a rough night, at least, and my head hurt. This wasn't my house, and this wasn't my ring. I tried to turn it off my finger and succeeded only in hurting my skin. Shit, I mumbled to myself, feeling my way through the dark. My vision cleared enough for me to find the slant of light coming through the curtains on the far wall. Reddish light that told me it must be early morning. Hopefully, early enough that I could get the hell out of this house, and this ring, before somebody found me. The first door I found led to a stately master bedroom with the full better homes and gardens treatment. Everything matched too well. A palette of creamy marble, dull gold, and crimson that made its way onto every surface. Every furnishing. I pulled the cord for the vent fan over the toilet and was happy to find it loud enough to dampen any noise I made. I finished up and washed my hands in the sink, putting on extra soap to get the infernal fucking ring to slip off. Focused on the ring, I didn't hear the door open behind me. I didn't even know somebody was in there until I felt big, masculine arms wrap around my arms and chest. I screamed and wrenched sideways without thinking. Whoever it was lost his balance and fell sideways, dragging me along with him. We both landed on the floor and he cursed and started coughing. I flew to my feet and turned around. Christ, Jessica, he coughed. My eyes must have widened. Patrick? I asked. He glared at me and rolled onto his knees, still coughing. You knocked the goddamn wind out of me, woman, he said. What the hell is your problem? I backed up toward the open door. Patrick Mickelson? I asked. I hadn't seen the man since the last day of summer after high school. I'd bought him dinner and broken up with him the same night before leaving for college. He'd expected to buy dinner, but I'd thrown five dollars down on the table and stormed out when he told me he expected me to bail on school. Some bullshit about needing a woman to raise his family. Who else? The man on the floor, Patrick, said. What's the goddamn deal, Jessica? Did we? I started, looking around. I bent in closer and whispered, Did we do something last night? He smiled and I felt sick. It wasn't a shit-eating grin so much as a shit-licking smirk. My skin crawled. Well, yeah, he said. Is that why you're so excitable this morning? He rolled onto his ass so I could see the half-erection marking lines in his worn Haynes briefs. He had the sort of body that looked at home in those underwear. Flabby, pale, and somehow underdeveloped. His torso was a series of curving lines. Soft and ill-proportioned. Like a hairy infant. Sinew and bone rose through the fat and soft flesh here and there like the roots of a large tree rising through earth and snow. I turned my mouth up at the sight of him and covered my chest thankful to have at least been wearing a heavy nightdress. I'd have liked to have been wearing a bra, three shirts, and a couple winter coats given the way he looked at me. His brown eyes were possessive, watery and red-rimmed. They could have belonged to some burrowing thing, some insect-eating rodent. He saw my expression and frowned. What the hell, Jessica? He called after me when I left the bathroom. 
I snapped open the curtains in the bedroom and I saw I was on the second story of a suburban house. Snow had robbed the world outside of form and color. A few children were already outside, trudging happily through the shin-deep white, but the rest of the world still hadn't woken up yet. Frost had swallowed the corners of the glass. Jessica, Patrick said, storming out of the bathroom with his cock gauzed up like a silkworm in his briefs. I turned my face away from him and pointed at it. Put that away, Patrick, I said. I don't know what happened last night or what you think it means to me, but you're being too goddamn forward. He stood there for a few seconds with his hands on his hips, staring daggers at me before fishing a pair of slacks up from his side of the bed. Where are my clothes? In the closet, Jessica, he said with exasperation, dropping his hands into feet beside his half-zipped trousers. You're being insufferable. I am insufferable, I whispered to myself, throwing open a closet filled with women's clothing. My turn to glare. Really, Patrick? I stood with one hand on the polished glass doorknob and the other on my hip. He stopped fiddling with the trouser button. Are these your... your wife's clothes? His mouth opened slightly. Then he looked around the room and back to me. Yes, Jessica, he said flatly. Those are my wife's clothes. I made a disgusted sigh and fiddled through them until I found something roughly my size the woman wouldn't miss. The closet was packed and I couldn't see what I'd been wearing the night before. What had I been wearing? Red pumps and something dark? Comfortable? Nothing like that in this closet. Hanger upon hanger of blue silk and white cotton. Flowing blouses and knee-cut dresses decked out in flower print. Perfume tinged the air, not sprayed there but clinging to the fabric. An inborn scent, vaguely floral and somehow blunt at the edges. The smell of a terminally married woman. I found some slacks and a pink blouse and threw both on. They were loose in the chest, ass, and hips. Clothing for a woman with more heft than I had all around, but more or less the same height. I found some socks and a pair of worn trainers I expect the woman wore gardening and wouldn't miss. It wasn't her fault I was there, invading her life. No reason to ruin a good outfit taking something she'd actually spent money on. The woman was a clean seven and a half shoe size, same as me, though the shoes had that odd feeling of otherness borrowed shoes often possessed. Nothing on earth will name you an interloper as quickly as somebody else's shoe on your foot. The toes were nearly identical to mine, though not entirely. Slightly off. The heel, too. Slightly off. Where are you going? Patrick demanded, pulling on a sleeveless undershirt. A rumpled lime green shirt lay on the bed, clearly left over from the night before. I remembered that lime green wool blend scratching my cheek in the dull cold of the late December night. The smell of sweat and alcohol radiating off Patrick and waves, along with that scentless musk. That dizzying smell that promised sex. Nausea tipped up in my gut and threatened to drop me overboard, right out of my own skin. I'm leaving, obviously, I said. He stepped in front of me as I tried to leave the room, his hand slamming against the doorframe. Not hard enough to break anything, but loudly enough to make the wall shake some. I glared at the hand, the arm the face standing between me and the cold winds of freedom outside this house. You'll do no such thing, he replied. God damn it, woman, what will the kids think? The neighbors, you wandering out of here at eight in the morning in chinos and your goddamn garden shoes? I won't allow it. I'll allow my foot up your narrow ass if you don't get out of my way, mister, I said back at him, leaning in and putting my hands on my hips. His face went dark red and the gall of the man. 
He grabbed me under my arms like a child and hurried me to the bed. The axe mashed my breasts painfully against my chest, and that's where the heels of his hands landed, and I gasped in pain. He didn't seem to notice. You're not going to curse at me in my own house, he hissed, and you'll stop carrying on with, with, with whatever's gotten into you and you'll goddamn cut it out right now before you wake the kids. I just glared at him and twisted at the big, stupid ruby on my finger. It seemed glued to my skin. He saw what I was doing and slapped my hand. You'll ruin the setting if you keep that up, he said. Oh, fuck you in the setting, Patrick, I whispered. Who's this fucking rock belong to anyway? Is it yours? Belong to your wife or something and you wanted to get up to some weird shit last night? He opened his mouth to speak. Get up to some, some weird shit and have me wear this stupid thing and now I can't get it off. You know, I don't remember a thing about last night. You better have been above board, mister. And well above board. If you weren't, well, well, they've got a word for what that is downtown and they'll send you up the river for it. Big house out there in the suburbs or no, mister, they'll send you up. His face had gone beet red. Stop calling me that, he said flatly. His tone was bloodless, though his face seemed about ready to pop from the stuff. Calling you what, Patrick? I asked, still fiddling with the ring. He slapped my hand again and I slapped his back. I never said what you did, what you might have done, what you better not have done, mister. That, he said, a bit louder this time. Mister, like you don't know me. I don't know what's gotten into you, Jessica. You're acting like a mad woman. If you're having some, some kind of woman trouble, I can deal with that. But I put this roof over our heads. It is my house, and I will not be spoken to like I'm some kind of stranger. Like I'm not, he floundered. Like you're not, not what, Patrick? I asked, finally giving up on the ring. I'd have the doctor cut it off tomorrow, the ring or the finger, whichever was cheaper. I resolved to send whatever was left to his wife by certified mail. I glanced around the room, trying to find a picture of her and seeing none. My goddamn wife, he shouted. I felt the blood go out of my face. I thought my ears were even ringing, though I realized after a second that it was some bizarre harmony the shouting had made with the overhead fixtures. It died out, and then I was left in a startlingly quiet room with an absolute madman. He vibrated, literally vibrated with rage. I stood, wanting to square my shoulders and give him the business, but instead I made myself meek and let them droop. I'd like to leave now, Patrick, I said, trying to seem non-threatening. Sit down, Jessica, he whispered. He ground his teeth and I could hear them. Insanity. I cleared my throat and corrected myself. I am leaving now, Patrick. I said. He stamped his foot and pointed at the bed. Sit your ass down, woman, he shouted. His flabby old torso looked menacing enough now. There was nothing funny at all about the way he'd moved me from the door to the bed, like it was so goddamn easy. Nothing funny about that. Not a goddamn thing. No, I said. I'm leaving. Get out of my way, Patrick. I paused. Please. He stood his ground and I swallowed, then tried to rush around him. He grabbed me by my hair and tossed me onto the bed, not expecting me to pop back up using the springs as momentum. I kicked him square in the shin so hard his foot left the floor. He yelped and fell to the ground. I didn't stick around. The inside of the house was an unfamiliar labyrinth. Closed doors clustered the hallway immediately outside the door, 
Framed pictures of Patrick and his two children in various stages of their lives littered the walls, but none of his wife. And thankfully, none of me, I thought. Bright sunlight poured in through a large window at the left end of the hallway, so I went that way, breathing a sigh of relief when I found a stairwell leading to the ground floor. A woman's coat hung on a rack by the front door, black and fur-lined. A yellow dry-cleaning tag reading C-32 hung from the collar. I had my hand on it when I felt a small arm wrap around my thigh. I froze and looked down to find a small girl gazing up at me. She had a fist in one eye, rubbing away sleep. Mommy, she said, are pancakes for breakfast or waffles? It's Sunday. No, I said. No, 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 none of that. I pressed two fingers to the girl's forehead and pushed her off my leg. It was slow going, but I made it happen. Free of my leg, her arm wrapped around her body in an unconscious way, joining its partner when she finished rubbing her eye. She swayed her shoulders and continued as though I had said nothing to her in the first place. Because I want pancakes, she continued. Waffles are full of cups, but I already have a cup when I'm eating and that's just dumb. Fascinating, I replied. Tell your father. Mom? A boy, roughly the same age as the girl. Both of them were in that same odd space of early youth, of an age to speak and use the toilet on their own, but unable to survive by any other measure. I felt bad leaving them with the madman upstairs, but when I heard his feet on the stairs, I bolted without thinking twice. The woman's coat was baggy on my shoulders, but warm. The air outside the house was cold and clear and somehow emptier, as though the air inside was filthy with some taint I had only noticed in its absence. It felt stuck to my teeth. I bent down and grabbed a handful of crisp, new-fallen snow and cleaned my mouth out with it. The ring. The fucking ring. Its band caught every chill breeze that blew past me as I made my way down the rows of stately, two-story suburban homes. The few children I passed waved at me in that way children have, as though their brains understand the necessity of the motion if not the philosophy behind it. I waved and smiled, just so that I would stand out less if Patrick came tromping after me. It wasn't much of a marvel to see he hadn't changed, though I'd never thought his bullshit machismo would ever blossom into full-bore insanity. That he thought I was his wife was mad enough, but the thought that I'd ever marry him, or anyone, was lunacy in and of itself. I love men. I absolutely love them. Not worn-out models like Patrick, but those painted steel and chrome beasts that are hale and hearty men. They are wonderful, and there's so many to choose from but there's absolutely no reason to choose just one. You can have as many as you like. If you're young and healthy and smart about who you pick, they like women just as well. And if they aren't complete cads, there's no reason not to stop and play with them from time to time. But to choose just one, and for that one to be Patrick, insanity. I made my way out of the suburbs and was happy to find my bearings on one of the larger side streets of the west side. Patrick's actual wife, God bless her, or at least the woman who owned this coat before me, had packed several small bills into the interior breast pocket. A few dollars and a genuine goddamn twenty-dollar bill, more than enough to get me home. I stopped at a corner five and dime and bought a cigarette, a lighter, and a phone call to the taxi company with the money. Then I stood outside and lit up while I waited for my ride. I leaned against the wall outside the shop, a simple brick-and-mortar number with big plate-glass windows plastered over with ads for smokes and booze. The cigarette felt damn good, damn good for sure. 
I smoked and watched the haze of each puff mix with the whipping cold and snow that had fluttered about my head. I was surprised to see a blue uniformed police officer walk out of the flurries. I was thinking about maybe relaying the odd situation with Patrick to him, when the man suddenly smiled broadly and walked up to me. I remember thinking, isn't that odd? Hello, ma'am. His voice had that friendly, authoritative tone teachers often reserve for bad kids cruising for a paddling. What brings you out here today? Nothing, really, I said, returning a much friendlier smile. Smoking, waiting for a cab. He nodded as though he'd expected the answer. Well, it is mighty cold out, ma'am, he said. Why don't you wait in my squad car? It's right around the corner, here off the pike. I'm fine, I said, thinking that would be the end of the conversation. I was wrong, obviously. He gave me that sage nod again and kept talking. He adjusted the badge on his winter coat. The number read C-32. You know, people are mighty worried about you, ma'am, he said. I must have looked confused. For a moment I thought he was talking about my roommate, Heather, or maybe one of the friends I'd gone out with the night before. Your husband called us up about ready to, well, burst a blood vessel. He said you stormed out on him right in the middle of this blizzard, wearing barely anything. The cop gave me a once-over that was anything but professional. The only things I weren't wearing that I might have been were a bra and mittens, and a man didn't look that hard at a woman to say if she was wearing mittens. There's been a mistake, officer, I said. I had a few drinks last night and met up with an old friend from high school. We haven't seen each other in nearly twelve years but I woke up in his house this morning. Also, I'm not married. Your husband seems to disagree, ma'am, the officer said, holding in a chuckle. He was a fat man, that same meatball and spaghetti arms body. He was nothing compared to some of the men I'd had in my life, little more than a shadow cast by a dying candle, but even that shabby body could manhandle me any way it chose. Manhandle. That is the word, is it not? I told you, I'm not married. I said, crossing my arms now. Then, uh, what's that? The cop asked, pointing at the big, fat, stupid fucking ruby on my finger. I considered scraping it to pieces on the wall, grinding it to nothing against the bricks. Damn the cost and Patrick's stupid wife. It's a ring, I said sarcastically. He stuck it on my finger last night and I can't get the damn thing off. I held it up to make a point and almost shouted when the cop gripped my wrist gently between his thumb and forefinger. Gently, but with fingers that may as well have been forged from iron. Jeez, he said in a mocking tone. Gee whiz, my wife would kill for a rock like that. He looked past my hand, but didn't release my wrist. You know, if you're trying to get rid of it, she'd sure be happy to take it off your hands. Please let go of my arm, officer, I asked. He didn't oblige me. We're going to go back to your husband now, okay? The officer said as though I wasn't speaking to him at all. He and your kids are worried sick. I don't have a husband, goddamn you, I shouted. I don't have kids. The officer jerked my arm and I nearly lost my balance. The lit cigarette fell and died somewhere down in the snow. Let me go, please, you're hurting me. He twisted my wrist just slightly, but electric currents of pain radiated through my bones. Now listen here, lady, he said in a quiet, controlled voice. I don't like having to deal with crazies, and I especially don't like two-cent women who try to run out on hard-working husbands and their children. Now, you don't want me to hurt you, 
and I don't want to have to hurt you. But it's damn cold out here, and I don't have time to sit around waiting for you to do the right thing. So let's go. He twisted my arm hard this time, and I whimpered and nodded. Good to see you understand, he said. Now, let's go. I was crying as he led me to the car. I couldn't believe the situation, and I'd never had anybody just hurt me like that in my entire life. I know pain is something other people take for granted, and I've gotten my fair share, but I'd never been coerced before. I'd never been tortured before, even if it was only a little bit. I cried, and I felt ashamed of myself, and I felt dirty. Dirtier than Patrick's filthy gaze made me feel. We rode in relative quiet, sticking to the filthy ruts other tires had gouged into the snow. I had no idea what to do. The officer had stuck me in the back seat with the doors that only opened from the outside. The plastic seat covers smelled of antiseptic and the faint, deep-seated aroma of vomit. We pulled up in front of Patrick's house and I saw him avert his eyes slightly when he saw me glaring at him. The cop got out of the car and grabbed my arm when he opened the door, whispering in my ear. Those are your children up there on the porch, ma'am, he said. Now, you're going to get out of this car and you're damn well going to behave yourself. Do not make me embarrass you in front of those children. They deserve better than that. Okay, I said. I did as I was told, doing my best to keep my footing as the smiling police officer dragged me toward this man's house. Patrick smiled at him and gave me a showy, big daddy frown. Oh, you're so bad, baby. He put his hand on my arm and the police officer let go of me. A clean exchange of custody. You're not my husband, I said flatly. He's not. I added, turning to the police officer. The man suppressed a glare, instead looking down at the children and offering them a broad, bushy smile. Why don't you kids head on inside, all right? He asked. The boy nodded and pulled his sister inside the house. The cop put his hands on his hips when they were gone and turned to Patrick, ignoring me entirely. Is there anything else I might help you with, sir? She doesn't seem all there. I opened my mouth to say something, but I felt a pinprick in my arm and a sudden pressure. Numbness chilled my skin as Patrick removed the needle. He'd gone and stuck me right through the coat, and without warning. I hate needles, by the way. I loathe them. They violate your skin in such a bloodless, non-committal way, as though it was never damaged at all. How dare! I slurred as the paint lines of the world smeared before my eyes. The officer slipped back into focus, saying something to Patrick. His voice sounded like somebody whispering through a mile of copper pipe. Yes, Patrick said to the man. Just needed her medicine. She's been unwell for a while, I'm afraid. The cop's head blurred as he nodded, all the color staying in place while the outlines fell away. His hair spun independently of his head. Then there was just a space where the body had been, a perfect absolution, a hole and empty place where the snow fell free and unencumbered. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Patrick kept me dosed up bad for the rest of the day. The girl, her name was Lisa or Liza, something with an L at the head of it. She kept by my side all worried glances and Johnny on the spot about wiping drool off my chin. She even helped me to the bathroom, waiting patiently outside the door while I finished my business. I couldn't focus on the world long enough to get around the house without her guiding me. She turned on the television around noon, when Patrick came beaming down the stairs and announced it was family movie time. Miracle on 34th Street was coming on, and we all knew what that meant. Only I didn't. I didn't know these children and this man from the strangers on the street. The girl curled up on my lap during the movie. It wasn't entirely unpleasant, but the one-sided intimacy of the act made my skin crawl, numb as it was. The boy, his name started with a P, turned the dial over to channel 32, and then we were watching the dumbest goddamn movie I'd ever seen. Patrick let my dose slip around dinner so that I could feed myself. The man was a master chemist, practiced beyond what he should have been capable of with that syringe. He had my doses planned out down to the hour. I suspected the boy could probably dose me too, the way he talked about it with him. The girl only ever gave me doe-eyed stares and hugged me whenever she could. I saw nothing of myself in her. I had dark hair and the Italian features that ran in my family. The girl was thick-boned, blonde, and green-eyed like her father. The boy too, though if pressed I might admit, he had my Uncle Henry's eyes. The girl, too, bore some slight resemblance to my grandmother as a young girl. But then again, I was doped up to my eyeballs on whatever horse tranquilizers Patrick had been mainlining into me. I was a needle away from paradise at that point. We finished dinner and Patrick sent the children to bed, early from the way the boy pouted. It was painfully apparent that he was planning on raping me, though given the man's disposition he probably wouldn't see it that way. He neglected another hourly dose and I felt a sensation akin to syrup washing out of my blood. I could still barely move, though, only enough to push myself to the far end of the couch. He ignored or didn't notice my reticence. 
dragging me back over to his lap to lay across his legs like a doll. I may have been a doll to him. Most men I've known in my life would have been queered off sex by the target of their affections being drugged up to her eyeballs. But I wasn't my own woman to Patrick. I was his wife. I swallowed when I felt his hand tracing over my hip, searching up my stomach for my breasts. I jerked as violently as I could when he touched one of them and, to my surprise, he stopped. He tried again a little later. By then, the syrup in my brain and blood had retreated enough for me to push the hand down. I even managed to brace myself and move back to the other side of the couch. He followed me as though it were an invitation, his whiskers scratching at my neck. He pushed his weight on top of me and then he was grinding against my leg as though he didn't even know how the whole apparatus worked. I moved my fingers up over his back. They were so weak I could barely feel them. I snaked them into his hair and pushed his ear against my mouth. Rapist. I whispered. He recoiled immediately, jumping to his feet and smoothing his shirt. He looked like he had just recovered from a bad fall and wanted to see if anybody noticed. The man on the television said goodbye for the night, and the end of programming static crackled into the room with wavering light. The placeholder image on the television was a black circle with three small intersecting lines at each third. Color and shadow played over Patrick's face. Oh, Holy Night piped up over the neutral image from a tinny, lo-fi television orchestra. How could you say that? He demanded. Not a question. Who the fuck do you think you are to ever, ever say that to me, the father of your children? I've never had children, you fucking psycho, I rasped. My vocal cords felt unused. The small amount of conversation felt like choking. I've been on birth control since they legalized it. I glared at him. Who the fuck are you? I'm your husband, he repeated. To have to hold all of that. Until death do us part, Jessica. He went and snapped off the television. Darkness covered us. I could only find him by a thin line of errant streetlight catching in his hair. Red and green Christmas lights colored the curtains in alternating splotches behind him. I broke up with you before college, I said. And honestly, Patrick, I'd fucking forgotten about you until I woke up in that bed this morning. You gave up on college and stayed with me, Jessica, he said. You know that. You stayed with me because we were in love, and we had two beautiful children together. Those are your children, Jessica. Your responsibility. He put his hands on his hips. God, I was sick of seeing men do that today. I don't have kids, you fucking psycho, I repeated. I cleared my throat as his shadow drifted out of the room. If it's still death to us part, then kill me and cut me up already, you piece of shit. I know how you're type too, Patrick. I read all about Charlie Manson and those sick fucks in California. He reappeared and clapped a hand over my mouth. I struggled against him, but all I could manage was a feeble slap at his hairy knuckles. I felt the pressure of a needle in my neck, worse than ever before. I won't tolerate that kind of language, Jessica, he said, voice eerily calm. You were such a good woman when I married you. You can learn to be that way again. I tried to tell him to go fuck himself, but the drugs knocked me out and I could barely swallow the next time I woke up. I came to in the bed, dressed in a nightie with my head and back propped up on a couple pillows. A worried-looking woman in a blue and white frock fussed over me and then checked my eyes with a flashlight. 
touch of an overdose, but that's no biggie. The woman chittered. She flashed me a bright smile and put a small, tan hand on my shoulder. Hello again, darling. It has been a while. I could barely focus my eyes. The woman's presence in the room was like a fistful of sand in the eye. She mistook my drugged-out glare for confusion. Oh, it's me, Jessie baby. Clarice, your nurse. No. Nurse. I managed. It elicited a pouty shake of the head from Clarice. You are in a bad way, she said. But that husband of yours should really take it easy with those injectables. My lord, you'd about futzed right out when I got here last night. She patted my cheek. You're a lucky lady. He was awful worried. I looked around the room. It was the bedroom, sans Patrick. I could see the fat red dollop of ruby on my finger, though, glittering just out of the corner of my eye. Help. I muttered. God only knows what Clarice actually heard. She just nodded and pouted over me and then left when Patrick got home. She'd hooked me up with a steady IV drip beside the bed, hanging off one of those rolling metal coat rack things. Patrick sat beside my legs, tracing the translucent feed line with his finger. He shook his head. Why did you make me do this? He asked. Do you have any idea what this is doing to the kids? Lisa asked me why I was hurting you last night. Can you believe that? Why I was hurting you. As though you aren't the one bringing all of this pain and frustration down on all our heads. He shook his head. You aren't any good to the kids in the ground or somewhere else. So, I've put in for a special procedure. I imagined myself able to move again. I'd sneak the IV out of my arm and into his when he wasn't looking, like some lady detective on the television. He'd only realized I'd gotten him good when he fell over onto the bed. In a television show, they'd bring in the cops, then, and book him, or whatever. If I got my chance, I'd get over the top of him with that damn IV stand and brain him to fucking death with the thing. They go in through the eye, right here, he said, nervously explaining the concept of lobotomy to me. I'd heard horror stories of healthy women getting them when they didn't need one, but I'd thought they were just horror stories. Then they just knock some bad threads loose and you'll feel better. You'll give up all this. Going off on your own business, and then you'll be able to focus on what's important. Us. Your family. He smiled and looked to the window, nodding at the thought. There are some, uh, issues with your medical paperwork due to how you were, uh, feeling a couple of months ago. He said, So I'm getting my friend downtown to go over some of that stuff and update things so the psychiatry department at the university won't decide they need to start poking into our business. It'll all be fine, dear, really, but we won't be able to get you taken care of until at least next week. He caressed my cheek with a finger and I turned to bite him. It was a slow, useless maneuver. He watched dispassionately as my head rotated, as my mouth opened. I got the finger between my teeth and bit down as hard as I could. I doubt it even left an impression on the skin. I tried again. He just pulled his finger free, wiping it clean on a handkerchief from his suit jacket. One week, Patrick said, giving me a sad smile. One week and you'll be my little girl again. I'll take you downtown for a steak. Hell, we'll go see one of those movies I never let you go see just as a surprise. 
He popped to his feet. Well, it won't be much of a surprise now, of course, but the doctor said you might have trouble holding on to things here and there. Maybe it will be a surprise. With that, he knuckled my cheek and left the room. The nurse came and got me a little while later, dragging me downstairs to sit through dinner in a wheelchair. The chair had its own IV bag holder. The girl, Lisa, watched the nurse fiddle with it between forkfuls of broccoli. She kept giving me that same doe-eyed look, the one I couldn't understand. The days to my lobotomy passed in hazy succession. Syrup dripped down into my veins from the IV bag, leaving me watery and stretched out. I spent most of my time in the bed, with little more than the silence of winter outside the window to keep me company. It was legitimately more enjoyable than Clarissa's non-stop yammering about her pedantic, boring life. I had the distinct feeling she was trying to kneel me about having such a nice house, not appreciating it. Generally, fuck Clarice. Saturday was the first change in the routine. Patrick didn't have work. Strangely, for a man, he never once talked about whatever it was he did downtown. We went to the park to see the Christmas decorations they'd set up. Patrick fed the IV line down through the neck of my coat and covered the bag in its own blue zip-up coat to keep the fluid from getting too cold. He pushed me along through crowds made up completely of smiling families and children popping around like Mexican jumping beans. The girl walked beside me the whole time, her little hand wrapped up in mine. I didn't bother trying to hold her hand back. Wouldn't have even if I could move my fingers. The boy asked to use the restroom and Patrick cursed when he found he couldn't wheel my chair into the park bathroom. The door was far too small to accommodate the thing. So he had the girl wait outside with me. I wondered who was watching who while the girl watched her dad disappear inside. I'm sorry, the girl said when he was out of sight. She climbed up onto my lap and unzipped the coat, the same black coat I'd stolen. The same black coat I'd been wearing when the cop dragged me back. A young soldier with close-cropped hair walked by with his family. A boy that could have been either his son or younger brother perched on his shoulders. His father walked alongside them, carrying a fat green military bag with C-32 stenciled along the side. The girl pulled me forward in my seat and then slid my coat down off my shoulders, working deliberately. I forced my watery neck to the side to watch as she pulled the sleeve down off my arm. Then she slid the needle out of the vein and adjusted it so it wouldn't poke me, going so far as to move the tape over the head of the thing. My eyes widened as the syrupy feeling drained out of me. I tried to stand. No, she said, pushing me back down and zipping up my coat. My mom's in the basement. It's not your fault, but you need to go down there too. What? I croaked. No, you pretend, she whispered looking over my shoulder and pushing me back against the chair. Pretend! She flopped down onto my lap, wrapping her arms around my waist in a hug. That same second, Patrick walked by with the boy. He saw the girl and smiled, tousling her hair. She flashed him a big smile. He passed us both and she flashed me a last, serious look before trotting off beside her brother. My heart felt about to seize up on itself for the rest of the trip through the park. Sweat broke out over my entire body as the syrupy thickness of the drugs receded. Shaking, raw energy suffused my muscles. Heavy winter clothes thankfully absorbed the jittery contractions rolling over my arms and legs as they came back to life. I would kill him, I knew. 
I would goddamn kill him for what he'd done to me. Perhaps there are women who'd take pity on the children, fear for their lives after I orphaned them. Not me. The little girl hadn't done me a favor. She'd done what was right. Despite her age and the odd situation between us, she'd seen through to decency. I'd repay her with a life well lived, but I would not spare Patrick. I thought of this and only this through the rest of our trip through the park. Quivering nausea ruled my body for the rest of the outing. We went to a few of the nicer downtown stores, where Patrick made a show of showing off dresses for me to wear. The girl played along fantastically, pointing at this one and that. The boy did little to hide his boredom. I struggled myself as well, dying to scratch at various parts of my body my arms could now reach, but I remained still. I hid. I bided my time and remained passive. I remained the half-dead woman Patrick had chosen as a mother to his children, replacing God only knows who. The little girl's words came back to me often, as I huddled in my chair and drooled on myself. My mommy's in the basement, she'd said. That's where you have to go. I forced my mind not to finger through the possibilities. I had more important priorities. Faking madness and decrepitude is harder than you might think. You can't do for yourself. Must not do for yourself. As the drug faded, its lingering after effects made my skin crawl with imagined insects. Tiny black centipedes I saw from the corners of my eyes. Delusions, of course. Still, I yearned to swipe at them. But I did not. I gave no indication to Patrick that I needed to use the restroom, because I feared he might remove my coat and see the loose needle. I knew if that damnable fang found itself in my arm again, everything was lost. But then we were home, pulling through the same blackened ruts in the snow the police car had followed to this house. Patrick lifted me out of the front seat, holding his breath to keep from grunting. He had only eyes for the chair which the boy fetched from the trunk and spread open beside the car. But I, I had eyes only for Patrick, my first voluntary motion since waking with an IV in my arm. I looked at him. I looked, feeling the muscles in my very eyes creak from the effort of motion after so long a time immobile. I looked and saw the crow's feet at the corner of his eyes. I saw the tiny imperfections of color in his irises. I saw the faded cups of chicken pox scars on his temple and forehead. I saw all of what made him, and what he was made of. A lifetime of scars and worries and joys carved into the skin of a face. With a lover's view of this man, I only saw myself killing him. The question of it was when and how. I could no longer trust my muscles. And within the hour, maybe less, the nurse would be back to check over my IV and change out the bag. If I struck out at Patrick and missed, if for a second he suspected something, he would overpower me in an instant. I bitterly remembered how easily he'd manhandled me on that first day. Now I was all but bedridden. He wheeled me into the kitchen, whistling, Baby, it's cold outside, to himself and fussing at the children to kick off their snow boots. He asked me if I would be all right alone in the kitchen for a while, and then walked to the door to the living room. He stopped hand on the door jam, and turned back to me. You've been lovely today, Jessica. Just lovely, he said. Do you need to use the restroom or anything? I know you've been stuck in that chair all day. He crossed his arms and frowned at me. You know, you've always been stubborn. All our lives together, you've always been somewhere else. 
But now, Jessica, you're about to be here, always here, here with us, with your family, where you belong. He walked over and squatted in front of the chair, his hands on my forearms. I thought of the needle tape just out of the way on my bicep and tried not to let my nerves show. He pushed me as he spoke, so the wheelchair rolled back and forth over the paisley linoleum. Then he caressed my cheek with one of his fat fingers. You were so beautiful today, he said. You're great with the kids, too. They both look up to you, you know. A rakish grin spread across his face. A grin that somebody had accidentally told him was cute once, I know. And then he now resorted to when trying to look endearing. Why don't you give me a kiss, baby? A real quick one, so I know you love me. I could have bitten him, but I didn't. I was biding my time. I was the trapdoor spider with just one shot at my prey. I was an adder with just enough venom for a single strike. Instead, I just stared at him, playing up the dead-eyed, drugged face that had been my only expression for days. I know you're there, Jessica, he said. No need to play coy, just give me a kiss. He smiled and pulled my face closer to his. His lips brushed over mine, crept over them like bald, moist caterpillars. I didn't bite him. I didn't vomit into my own lap. I just sat there and took it, never so much as flinching. He stood and rolled his eyes, pushing off the chair in a way that hurt my arms and sent me rolling backward. He shook his head and put his hands on his hips. You're a real, a real chill bird. You know that, Jessica? He wiped his hands on his trousers as though I'd gotten something on him. He spoke to himself absentmindedly while doing this. You know, I don't think you need to go to the bathroom just yet. You've barely had a thing to drink all day. He didn't spare me another look, just turned and walked upstairs to take care of the kids. I waited until I could hear his footsteps upstairs before shaking my coat loose and stretching. Every bone, sinew, and joint popped and groaned as I pushed my arms high over my head. That same shaking, jittery feeling of freedom from when the girl had pulled the needle loose of me flooded through my body. I was suddenly aware of just how badly the wheelchair hurt my ass. I considered standing, but thought better of it. Nothing would give me up more than falling on my face in the kitchen. No, it was better to wait it out. I looked around and my eyes settled on the wooden block of kitchen knives by the sink. Even in a wheelchair, they weren't far out of reach. Patrick really wasn't all that much of a father. He came downstairs a few minutes later. I had gathered myself back into the chair, the doped-up expression on my face concealing nothing less than pure hatred. He stopped a few yards short of me, hands on his hips. The jacket, tie, and starched white shirt he'd been wearing were gone now, leaving just his trousers, black socks, and a weirdly sweaty undershirt. Are you ready for the bathroom now? He said, an infantile tone touching the edges of his voice. He crossed his arms. How about that kiss? I glared at him without meaning to when he saw. I was worried for just a second that I'd been found out but he interpreted it differently, just that I was still being obstinate. Patrick couldn't see that I was nearly free of him. Fine, he pouted. Be that way. You can stay down here for all I care, and the nurse can take care of you when she gets here. He turned to leave, and I played the only card in my arsenal. I couldn't risk jumping out of the seat and sprinting up behind him, 
or hunting him through the house when I thought he wasn't paying attention. As awful as it sounds, I pissed myself. The IV in my arm provided most all of the hydration I needed for the day. Granted, most of it had soaked into the lining of my heavy winter coat, but the rest gathered in my body where any water normally would. I thought at first it wouldn't be enough, but in a second I could hear the patter of urine dripping onto the ground below my seat. Patrick's face turned up in disgust. Are you serious, Jessica? He shouted. You dirty girl. You dirty, dirty girl. The sickening hint of a smile played across his face. Oh, you've really gone and done it now, Missy. If I have to treat you like a child, I will. Maybe I'll have to run my belt over your bottom tonight. How would you like that? He kept on in that manner, grabbing a handful of paper towels from beside the sink and dropping them onto the mess. He mentioned something about having things tidy for when the nurse got here. He wouldn't want people thinking ill of him with his wife in this state. I marvel to this day that he didn't notice my right hand tucked deep into the coat sleeve. He was so preoccupied he didn't notice me at all. Patrick knelt down to pick up the first handful of paper towels and I grabbed a tuft of his hair. Then I jammed the six-inch carving knife I'd hidden in my coat sleeve into the space between his neck and shoulder, just over the collarbone. I tried to pull it free to stab him again, but it slipped out of my hand as he stumbled back across the kitchen. His face was wide with surprise, and very pale. He fell in a slump against the oven door. The entire thing rocked from the impact. I pushed myself out of my seat slowly. I'm loath to admit that I loved the horror on his face when I stood up over him. He couldn't believe it. Absolutely couldn't believe it. He had had me. I was just some woman. He had the power. He could do whatever he damn well pleased, right? But no. No, not now. Not ever again. How about that, Patrick? I asked. You like that? He didn't say anything. His lips opened, but all that came out was a sound like a choked hiccup. For the first time that day, I felt the other woman's clothes on me. The piss on my legs and the stale sweat stink of the blouse was too much. I stripped all of it off in the kitchen, relishing the cold feel of the air on my naked body. Then I went to Patrick and pulled the knife free of him with a single hard jerk. Hello, called a cheery voice from the living room. I heard the front door shut and turned to see the nurse, Clarice, stuffing her keys into her pocket as she walked toward the kitchen. A paper bag full of medical supplies sat in the crook of her left arm. Thought I'd just let myself in, Mr. Mickelson. I've been knocking for a few minutes now. She looked up and saw me, freezing in her tracks. Oh my God. Sorry, Clarice, I said. We didn't hear you come in. Clarice screamed and dropped the bag, turning to run for the door. I flew over the carpet after her, buck naked and streaked with blood and urine. My every footstep was silence. She had the door cracked enough for cool, blue winter light to pour into the house. I slammed into her and she slammed into the door, closing it with a smash that rattled the front wall of the house. Then I started stabbing her. I gave it to her maybe forty, fifty times. She'd been the one drugging me. She'd been the one keeping me doped up and waiting for a lobotomy. A fucking lobotomy. Because I was being a bad housewife, that was it as far as she knew. I was going to get my eggs scrambled. I would have stabbed her more, 
if the knife hadn't gotten jammed between the bones in a rib cage and slipped out of my hand. I found Patrick slumped over the kitchen counter when I finished with the nurse. He had the receiver for the telephone on the counter and was trying to dial the police on the rotary. He was too weak to hold the phone in place, though, and he hadn't made it past the 9 and 911. I pulled the phone out of the wall and smashed it to pieces on the floor. Well, I said, wasn't that fun, Patrick? His grave face turned to me and I pushed him off the counter. He groaned and a gout of blood splashed out of the wound beside his neck. I'd never been this violent before, nothing even approaching it, and I was almost sick with how easy it came to me. Isn't this wonderful, Patrick? I asked him, hand on the counter. Aren't I just a joy to have around? Until death, Patrick. Until death, you said. Not such a commitment. If you can pick the place and time, is it? Is it, Patrick? You shit. I looked down at my body. I was disgusting. I'm getting a shower, Patrick. It was a sudden decision, but I stuck to it. Bloody footprints marked my passage up the stairs. I gave Clarice a last look on the way up and saw she'd moved some, though not far. Blood had pooled around her, snaking through the white Berber weave of the carpet in odd angles. The children stood in the doorway of the boy's room at the top of the stairs. The boy was clearly terrified, and so was the girl, though her expression carried some other weight as well. Go to your rooms, I said, pointing a bloody finger. They obeyed snapping the door shut so hard a cool breeze floated down the hall. I got a long, hot shower in Patrick's gaudy master bedroom and dressed in the most nondescript dress I could find in his wife's wardrobe. I found the ratty sneakers again and slipped them over a pair of regular white socks. Nothing fancy. I'm not a woman who needs fancy things. I found a trail of Patrick's blood leading down the basement stairs when I finished. I followed it. Not sure if I would finish him off or something like that, but expecting some violence all the same. I thought of him waiting for me with a hunting shotgun he kept squirreled away or something of the sort. But all that could happen then was that I could die, and death was an honest end to this madness. The basement was half-finished, old, and cluttered with mounds upon mounds of old boxes and other assorted shit. An old moose head at least twice Patrick's age hung just beyond the end of the stairs. His blood led me past that, to where I found him, dead against the far wall in the clearing amongst the detritus. The emaciated body of a dead woman lay in his arms. She'd rotted dry months ago, from the look of it. Above them, a thick rope covered in hasty cut marks was tied to a rafter. In the center of the clearing were a few melted candles and a large symbol drawn on some cracked brown paint, a circle with three small, perpendicular lines crossing it at every third. A lined circle, a voice in my head told me. Beyond that was a great steel door, like a naval hatch set into the wall. The letters C-32 were stenciled on it in red paint. Looking at the thing gave me a headache, like a needle pressing into the flesh behind my left eye. I knelt beside Patrick and looked him over. His face was a death mask of confusion and horror. A box of framed photographs sat beside him. They were all pictures of me but also not me. The woman in the photos had my face, for sure, but was chubbier and sadder looking. The photos went all the way back to Patrick's and my senior prom, a Polaroid, of which I still have a copy, my own copy, of Patrick and I hugging each other beneath a gaudy, awful papier-mâché dove 
the point at which I and that woman ceased being the same person. You damn fool, I said to him under my breath. I remembered the ring with the big, stupid ruby on my finger and took some time wrenching it off. A week on the IV had thinned me enough that it popped free. I slipped it onto the dead woman's finger, where it belonged, and heard a noise behind me. I turned to see the door hanging slightly open, darkness and an almost physical bluish light spilling out of it. I stepped into the accompanying flat, concrete hallway, shutting the door behind me. The hall led to another door, which led to the basement of the house I had just left. I walked through the door and heard it shut, but there was nothing there when I turned around. The house above this basement was decrepit and long abandoned. The same furnishings and ugly linoleum filled the kitchen, but that and the layout were the end of the similarities. Patrick didn't have a family here to fill this place with stuff, to keep it from rotting to pieces and collapsing. This house was little more than a memory of something that had never happened. No cop stopped me when I bought a pack of cigarettes with some of the money I'd taken out of Patrick's wallet. Nobody even wondered where I'd been the last week though my landlord was somewhat miffed that I'd lost my keys. No. People tend not to care so much what a single girl on her own gets up to, so long as it doesn't cause them any inconvenience. I checked up on Patrick a few years later, out of sheer burning curiosity. On this side of the door marked C-32, he drank and womanized a touch more than other men. He got a nice job out of college but his drinking only got worse until he rear-ended a garbage truck at 6.30 a.m. on a Wednesday, and the same year I woke up in that bed on the other side of that door. A few of his friends I talked to said he complained about being lost in a life he wasn't supposed to be living. He talked like that a lot, they told me. He talked like that a lot. That was Bands of Golden Iron. What did you think? Hate it? Love it? If you woke up in Jessica's situation, what would you do? Have you ever been in a situation like that and want to share your story? Let me know by getting a hold of me at westsidefairytales at gmail.com. I love hearing from fans and I'll always make time to get back to you. So, no matter if you want to complain, give me a compliment, or just get some clarification on what the hell even just happened in that story you were listening to, I'm always available for a quick chat. If you prefer brevity or just want to watch me gab about stuff I like and bother other podcasters, you can follow me on Twitter at Westside Fairy Tales. We're also on Facebook, if that's more your speed. Just search for Westside Fairy Tales and follow us. And if you're a fan of pictures of creepy things I run across in the world, or really, uh, lots of unasked for photos of my pet rabbits, follow us on Instagram at Westside Fairy Tales. Those of you who are new to the podcast may not know this, but every single story in this anthology takes place in an interconnected universe, through which runs a massive, secret plot thread involving thousands of characters, places, and events. If you want to get ahead of everybody else in figuring out the mystery behind the Westside Fairy Tales, you should join our Patreon at patreon.com slash westsidefairytales. Anybody can join for a dollar, but if you put in five or more, you get access to behind-the-story videos where I talk about how I wrote the stories, what I was going for in writing them, and also access to a few hints and secrets about the lore behind the stories. And, speaking of patrons and fans, as this is the last episode of the second season of the West Side Fairy Tales, I want to take a second and just gush over you all. 
Less than a year ago, when I started season two of this podcast, I was unemployed, struggling to make any headway as a writer, and pretty down on myself most of the time. But as this season has progressed from November 2017 to now, the West Side Fairy Tales has begun to catch on. People are writing to me about the stories, sharing this project of mine with their friends, and stepping up to support my writing with real, hard, no-shit currency. I'm actually a professional writer now, and I can't thank you all enough for, well, basically just getting me. You understand what I'm trying to do here, you listen to the stories, and you keep coming back for more. Even if I never get one more fan than the few I've assembled over the past several months, every single one of you guys make these late nights writing and recording and editing worth it. I love you guys. I really mean it. I'm going to read the names of my patrons from this year at the end of this episode, and then again in about a year at the end of episode 310, which I've already written and is sitting nice and snug waiting to be recorded. Even if the number of names doesn't increase, we're going to get there together. But, no lie, I would love to spend two hours reading off every new name. So, if you don't mind, get out there on the streets and tell people you love about the West Side Fairy Tales. We're growing every day, but we still need all the help we can get. The West Side Fairy Tales will return October 7, 2018, with the first episode of Season 3, Quarterly Review. During the break, I'm going to be hard at work writing Season 4 of the podcast, Season 3 is already done, and finishing up some novels I started and never got around to wrapping up. I might pop in sometime in August with some short, off-season content, so I'll see you then, if I see you. And, until then, stay safe out there. Westside Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. All content herein, copyright 2018, Tyler Bell. And here is the promised shout-out to my patrons. Thank you to everybody going in order from top to bottom. Jack Luna from the Dark Topic Pod, CC Howell, Soraya Crowley, Teresa Cochran, Monique Iamarino, Emma Blackwell, Christine S., Skilax McGreevy, F.K. Minster, Veronica Sierpella, Mandy Ratliff, Canadian True Crime, Maggie James, and Helen Foster. Thanks, everybody. You are the best. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, 
and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast, due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.